Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. That, of course, is Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast. I'm your host, Sandra Flack, and I'm here trying to get reacclimated to recording podcasts because I had a month of travel and I had recorded everything ahead of time for that month. And so it's been a month since I was last here at the microphone to connect with all of you. And I'm grateful to be back and grateful that you're here. Uh, yeah, I had a month. My September was full of travel. I started off uh, heading to Atlanta from my home base in upstate New York and got to go down and spend some time with the amazing Faith Bridge folks down, down there and got to record uh, some training, some FASD training with um, Faith Bridge for their Faith Bridge U. Um, and also got to uh, do an FASD workshop uh, live for their um, foster families. Uh, so that was that was a wonderful opportunity. And then I got home and was home for about a week and headed then down to Washington, D.C. for the FASD United Affiliate Summit, which was incredible. I got to spend some time meeting in person so many um, amazing folks from the FASD community that I've only ever met on Zoom or online, social media, that kind of thing. So that was wonderful. Uh, and I spent about two and a half days in DC and then jumped on a plane and headed to Oklahoma City for the CAFO summit, which I, I think that was my 12th, 13th year going to CAFO. Um, and I got to um, that was a time of refreshing. I have to tell you that the the theme this year for KFO was uh, exactly what I needed. It was about um, the theme was unhurried living with the long view in mind, right? So eternity, and I find that I have been just in this season of hurry, busy travel, all kinds of things going on. So I really needed that that message. And it really spoke to me. And I've been trying to even um, kind of meditate on that since I've been home, because it's still kind of busy, and I really need things to settle down. But and I think that was one of the reasons why I picked the 23rd Psalm, because I could use some green pasture, still water time for sure, uh, in in my, my schedule and my life. Um, so I feel like I'm just getting back to, okay, we're going to record some podcasts and how do I even hook up all the equipment again and and uh, just try to get back into it here with you. And I have a great guest today. I'm excited to bring you. Um, and if you notice, my background is finally a little bit nicer than it has been now that we're doing video. Uh, all of these podcasts, if you didn't already know, we started in September releasing the video. So the background was just a blank wall or other random things behind me. And I really needed some bookshelves in my office. And so I ordered um, 
this bookshelf behind me from Ikea. And if any of you have ordered from Ikea before, you know what a what a interesting puzzle solving project putting anything together there is. But while I was out gallivanting and traveling, my wonderful husband was home putting together this bookcase behind me. And when I got home, it was all together and set up. And all I had to do was fill it with my things. So um, I love it. And I'm grateful uh, that he was able to do that for me. He supports me in all that I do. I couldn't do what I do without him. And uh, maybe one of these days we'll have him on. Um, But Anyway, here we are, and we're ready to dive into some great podcasts for you this fall and winter. Um, So, so excited to be back with you. Before we meet today's guests, I would love for you to check out these announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. In addition to the FASD support community, Um, I'm also now offering coaching for um, coaching sessions for families, for individuals uh, using the the facets neurobehavioral model, that brain-based approach. So if you're looking for workshops, if you're looking for some coaching, if you're looking for that support group, all of our resources, you can find out more on our website at justicefororphansny.org. And I am excited to bring you our guest today. I've been reading uh, his book and actually our Hope for the FASD Journey support community. We've been going through the book together chapter by chapter and getting so much out of it. So uh, our guest today is Nate Sheets. Uh, He is an FASD behavior consultant and parent coach with 15 years of experience working with neurodivergent people of all ages uh, and their families. He developed the cognitive support framework after taking a personal interest in cognitive neuroscience and neurodiversity. Nate is also author of the book, Essential FASD Supports, Understanding and Supporting People with Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders. Please welcome Nate Sheets. Hey, Nate. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Um, so excited because I know our our support group has been going through your book um, chapter by chapter as a book study and just so excited to be able to meet you and have this conversation with you because we are really enjoying your book, um, The Essentials, FASD, Essentials, Essential FASD Supports. Um, I have it here. I know sometimes in the camera, it'll come look backwards, but you can get a visual of what the, what the book's like. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm really curious to know at what point in your career, like where, when did you really discover and come to understand FASD? Cause I know as parents, sometimes we've not really heard of it until, until we're 
you know, dealing with the big behaviors of our kids, our kids don't always have a diagnosis. So um, what about you? Where did you really begin to learn about FASD? Yeah, I started to learn about it in an entry-level position at a foster care agency. It was like a private foster care agency here in Oregon that worked like with therapeutic level care. So it was like beyond the child welfare, but the intense behaviors and needs specifically for kids with developmental disabilities. And, but it's foster care. So you, there's just like a lot of the same kind of stuff. And um, there were several situations, but there was a particular client who had some really interesting behaviors and he had a lot of strengths, um, but then he just did stuff that people weren't understanding. And so, you know, I, I, I was fascinated by like, what, what is this kid doing? It, it involved a little bit of stealing, a little bit of lying, just things that didn't make sense. Um, and so one of the the steps I took to try to figure the situation out, you know, in my job as a skills trainer and as the kid's case manager was to like, look through what are, what's going on here. So I saw that he had fetal alcohol. I didn't know too much about it. I started educating myself then. Um, and then I also started growing into more behavior, special, um, like uh, behavior consultation is what it is. So you're assessing behaviors and because of my, understanding of FASD, I just continued to learn about it. And it was um, pretty common, you know, like to, to encounter kids who had this or suspected to have it. And so I, I figured, well, I, I need to learn more about this because th that might have something to do with the confusion that people are feeling. And so I, I just started there and I started with Diane Malbin and did her training and her, the three-day one. Um, and continue to learn from the community and put some videos out there people you know were were you know uh resonant to and yeah i just kind of kept going from there so now i do a lot of behavior consultation i specialize in fetal alcohol um but i have like experience with a lot of developmental disabilities that's wonderful and i'm so grateful for for the work that you are doing because it's not not everybody even professionally really understands FASD and then for you to take that seriously and, and sort of dive deep into it. I'm thrilled that you got some training with, with Diane Melbourne. I'm a, I'm a certified facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model, which is a mouthful, but that's how I'm required to say it because I don't work for FACETS. So I can't say I'm a FACETS facilitator, but I am trained in the neurobehavioral model and I teach and train um, using that. So I am um, so grateful for everything that you shared because I, I find that as you unpack things in your book, it lines up very well, like very similarly, you know, that whole brain-based approach. So I really appreciate it. And um, in your book, you outline what you call cognitive support framework. So would you explain um, to, uh, explain that to us? Yeah. So I came up with the, the idea of cognitive supports. You know, there's different kinds of supports and, you know, whether it's like a physical support, a sensory support, there's cognitive supports. And really it is the motivation of the person, the supporter, the person giving the support. And so if something is a cognitive support, you are doing something because you have some kind of cognitive situation in mind. So in the case of fetal alcohol, there's several, but a very big one is um, they often do not process verbal language kind of in the instantaneous way that most of us do. Um, and so what that means is we can't be having really quick conversations with them and then getting 
annoyed and punishing them when that information is not processed or remembered or maybe misremembered later. And so a, a, one of many things I could do is keep my words short, keep my sentences short, and then be quiet and give time to think. So if my motivation as the supporter is something cognitively based, like processing verbal language, that's what makes it a cognitive support. So most supports that you're already doing that are effective, they might actually be a cognitive support already if you're linking them to specific cognitive skills, which we talk about not very many. There's there's about 40 that I'm doing like in day-to-day -day life with families I'm considering, but in the book, we focus on about six. Yeah, and I really appreciate it, especially that, you know, your emphasis on the, the the processing, the slower processing and slowing down and using less words, because when I, as a parent, before I had any formal training, learned about slower processing and how, you know, my son was not catching um, every word. Some, I know sometimes we say they catch every third word, right? Um, mm -hmm. And even when I would give lists, like I want them to learn to make choices. So I'll give give a list of things for, for breakfast. Do you want cereal? Do you want eggs? Do you want oatmeal? And I, real, I started realizing a pattern of he always picked the last thing that I said. Yeah. Um, and, and it could be memory, but I, I, I've come to realize that it's just the last thing that he caught out of this list of things I was giving him. Right. right. So, yeah. And if I... If I gave the same list the same way every day, he would just always pick the last thing, even if it wasn't his favorite thing out of the three things, right? And then right. I started experimenting with it and kind of shuffling the list and discovering if I offered the same things in different order every day, he still only picked the the third thing, the last thing that I said. So it's so interesting when you come to understand that slower processing and giving time and not not. Not, and I was always the lecturing parent, right? So bombarding my kids with all kinds of verbally spoke, you know, all the spoken spoken words. Um, and and recently, my 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 youngest son is is eighteen, and he came home the first week of school, and I'm I'm I asked him how school was, and he said they talk too much, right? And I right away could understand they're giving him too many words, and I was able to say you can tell the teacher that you process slowly and they have to slow down, and he. At first, he was like, I can't tell the teacher that. And I said, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> they need to understand that they can't just give you all of this information um, and have you be able to catch it all. So it's so interesting. So I love I love that part of what you were sharing. Um, I also appreciate because you get into connection a little bit. And and uh, that was one of the things that when, when my boys got diagnosed many years ago with fetal alcohol syndrome, <clears throat> There wasn't a whole lot of information or resources out there for us. What was on the internet was scary and hopeless. Um, so we dove in at the time to what we did know and what we did have access to as adoptive parents. And that was the whole um, connected parenting, right? Dr. Karen Purvis and uh, trust-based relational intervention and all of that. And, and that did work very well. We got connection. Um, we were, you know, building that connection, disarming fear, doing all those things, which really, really worked. Um, until they became teenagers. And while that was still working, it was apparent we needed more, which was really understanding the FASD. Um, but you share the importance of connection in your book as well. So could you could you kind of explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, that's chapter two. And I essentially wrote the book in order of support importance. So it's really, really important because if you 
you know, connections, the word we use, but what I'm thinking of is like the neuroscience of that, which is safety. And when, yes. when I say safety, I don't mean that the kid thinks I'm safe or I'm not safe. It's not what they, what they consciously are thinking. It's what the other parts of their deeper brain are feeling and responding to. And that's, that's a concept called neuroception. So um, connection is important because when you're in connection, your brains are sending cues of safety to each other. And that lays a foundation that can get us more buy-in because maybe we have a kid who's very resistant. And so that's kind of the, the short and the long-term um, goal for this kid is to get them times of connection. And every situation is different. Um, and like in some situations, you might be prioritizing connection and then um, you know, you still have a really rough rest of the day, right? And that doesn't mean that that connection was for nothing. Can we pause? I'm so sorry. My cat is howling. This. So you might even have a situation where you connect with a child and you have a great time of connection and then the rest of the day is a disaster. But that's actually like, it doesn't mean that the connection was for nothing. It was, there's still a benefit to banking that time. Um, you know, over many different situations. And if you don't have the connection or if the connection is um, often interrupted by dysregulation, either from us or with the kiddo, that makes things harder. So a lot of times, you know, we put these kids in situations and they're not being successful, but is there any safety? And again, not conscious safety, telling the kid you're safe, it completely misses the point. Right. It's what is their brain that has possibly been through a lot of trauma, has disabilities and, and maybe struggles to process certain pieces of information or does it inconsistently, um, we, we don't want to miss the point. So um, there's intentional things that we can do, even if we have to take it really slowly, which you do for some kids in certain situations, they'll reject your connection. So then a lot of work has to be put into how do we slowly build connection, maintain safety, and then eventually when the kids may be more developmentally um, like there because their brain has developed or um, when they're more willing, just outwardly willing to have a conversation about some of these tough issues or to problem solve, um, the connection is laying the basis for that. Yeah. And we found connection was that was a big piece. And we 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 were doing great with connection. And actually, our, our youngest son, in, in, when COVID happened, whoops, when COVID happened and um you know, school was abruptly shut down and our kids do much better when it's consistent and there's a routine and there's a schedule. They need to know what's going to happen. Right. So yeah. for us, COVID was school shut down. Maybe you'll go back next week. No, maybe it'll be the next week. No, maybe it'll be next month. My son had a really hard time with that. And then when we did go back, which was the fall of 2020, school had changed significantly. The, the, the school had made so many changes to the day. It wasn't the same. And although my son's class, some of the school was remote, my son's class, it was a special education class. They could go in person. The changes, he, he was no longer feeling safe. He couldn't say, I don't feel safe, right? But he was really back in survival mode because yes. nothing felt safe to him. And in and what we ended up doing, because he stopped, he was not learning a month into school. And the teacher was like, he doesn't remember. There was clearly a lack of learning going on. No. Um, you know, beyond beyond what his challenges were to begin with. So we ended up pulling him home um, and homeschooling him for the rest of that year, because that's where he felt safest in connection with us and having more of a routine. 
Um, and that, that really went a long way and he started to be able to learn again. Um, but that connection is such a huge piece. Um, that and so it, learn without that safety, like it shuts it down. Exactly. It's no surprise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that dysregulation, right? When, when they're in a dysregulated state, there is no learning or higher reasoning or anything. We can't say calm down, you know, none of that is going to work. Um, and what I find, which you also, we, we, we talked a little bit about with the slow processing is slowing everything down. Right. And, and I know personally in my life, things have been very busy. I've been traveling a um, lot of things going on and my son, you know, I've learned over the years to, to, try to keep myself regulated because if I'm not regulated, he's not going to be regulated. Um, and as things are crazy, busy, and kind of fast paced, he's also not regulated. He doesn't do as well. So you spend a lot of time, I know, in your book on on slowing down, right? That's an important, um, important part. Um, slowing down. And um, why is that? Can you explain a little bit why is that important with an individual with FASD, that fast paced why is that not good for them? And why is slowing down, not just, not just in our verbal, right? Less words um, and, and giving them time to think, but why is overall slowing things down um, better for them? Yeah, because in, in a lot of situations, there are situations where like more time, the thinking like we'll get you, we can get distracted yeah. or it just is not thought about. Um, but in a lot of situations, like the person just needs time to take in the information, because if you move the situation ahead, and some situations naturally move themselves ahead, the person is going to become distracted from what it is you wanted them to learn, or they might be thinking about that and missing what's actually happening. And so there's just like all these like little in the moment things, which generally speaking, you know, the slowing down isn't just even for them, it's for us. It's to say, wait a minute, I don't want to be impulsively running my mouth and using way too many words. I want to be regulated. And so slowing down visuals that is a, a chapter in the book is also essentially a way of slowing things down. Let's let the person look at something and process the information differently. Um, but in order for them to do that, we might have to carve out some structure into giving them that time to think. And it has to be quality time to think and probably an extended time to think and maybe multiple sessions of thinking about it. I'm glad you said the visuals because I have used visuals with my kiddo and I have been saying for a long time, visuals are great. If you have a visual learner, my kiddo is not a visual learner, so they don't work. Right. Um, because I've put up visuals and, and it seems like they don't work, but what I love in your book is you don't just say use visual cues or, you know, visual visuals, you explain how to use it. Right. So I literally, printed off a picture of um, in, in our bathroom about a picture of a toilet, flush toilet, wash hands, right? I plastered the bathroom with those and it's like nobody ever does that. So they're not paying attention to these visuals. However, you point out in the book, you go over the visual, you practice what's on the visual. You don't just hang it up and figure they're going to catch it, right? So I was like, oh, Maybe the visual would work if I taught it and practiced it with my kiddo. So explain for our listeners, if you want to use a visual, how, what is the right way to do it? Yeah. I mean, the right way. I'm not like the authority, <laughs> but I just, I, a lot of parents have tried like handing their kid a checklist 
putting the visuals up in the bathroom or in their in their bedroom but like we kind of leave it to them we assume there's the visual but do they have the skills to use the visual so in the book the example i use is if you give a kid a checklist and it's to clean their room and there's like five or six different things on there well when they 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 read the first thing they put the checklist down they go and do the first thing, right? There's a lot that can happen within just that in terms of distractions and and the kind of kid we're talking about. And then after they finish it, does any part of their brain say, okay, now I need to go and re-reference that checklist. Does it click that together? And oftentimes the answer is no. So that's why we need to be using the checklist with the kiddo. And I I really encourage people to do tasks with your kids. It's very time consuming. And so I empathetic to that but that will help with the learning and then so you're doing it with them that's the most concrete then you have a visual so then you're teaching them how to use this visual and maybe in doing that you're figuring out you know maybe someday they'll be able to use this visual independently but i might need to tweak this about this or add that and it, it can maybe develop more effective visuals which then later on the kiddo will be able to use by themselves and and a lot of kids might even reject visuals because it seems like it's more like it's more effort to have to do it but you can still give them a try and if we can do it in a regulated way and give it a few tries even if we have to eventually stop because it's just not working um, you know, a few years later, when you're problem solving, maybe some of the same things, they might suggest, well, why don't we try this visual? Because they remember trying it a few years ago. And so you can give it another try and then try practicing it and and, and implementing it the same way. Yeah, I love that because it was it was this revelation to me like, oh, we could have practiced it. Right. And I could have taught from the visual where instead I just made this really nice visual, hung it up in the bathroom and assumed my kid was going to look at it and then do what it suggested, right? And it never happened that way. But I never, I never thought about we need to practice it. I need to teach it. So that that was like a game changer for me because I realized I got to stop saying my kid's not a visual learner. I have to teach it first, and then we'll see if he's a visual learner or not. Um, so that was that was a huge takeaway for me so far, and that was really still at the beginning of the book. Um, as you as you unpack. Um, the essential supports for our kiddos with FASD in everyday life, um, you talk about the importance of planning, right? Um, to prevent, that helps prevent escalation. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the goal is to, as much as possible, work with a kid or a teenager or an adult with an FASD and collaborate to problem solve situations. So that could be anything from a routine in the morning to get to school, or like you're talking about, like, what can we do when we get upset? Um, but to to plan and collaborate with someone, A, they need to be developmentally ready to do that. And that is right. different amongst a lot of people. And they need to be willing. And so that's where the connection and, and all the work in the beginning of the book comes in. But if you get, get both of those in place, and so you have a kid who's willing to problem solve occasionally, uh, and, and it, it, it seems like it's developmentally appropriate, then the question is, well, how do we effectively collaborate with them or make plans together? And so in the book, we talk about, like, obviously, a verbal conversation probably isn't going to cut it. Are they going to remember that conversation minutes hours, days, weeks later, when they get escalated about something, is their brain going to say, oh, I need to follow that strategy that, you know, me and mom talked about? Um, Probably not. (laughs) But, you know, and so 
within the planning system, there are things that we can do, including practicing and role playing if, if the person's willing um, to, to get to that point. And if you can, a, a lot of my adult clients with FASDs who are, who are willing, not all of them are, but who are willing to role play and practice, it is so helpful for them that they reach out to me to role play and practice things, or they reach out to their parents oh. to say, Hey, and that's like, that's like one of the coolest things for me to hear is that they in a moment are realizing this is a strategy that works for me. And that really is the goal of all of them. They should realize that they need people to be quiet and give them time to think and not use so many words. They need visuals, if that's one of theirs. They they need to practice and role play before they're actually put in a situation and advocate for that and, and, and be more successful because of that. I love that. That's so, it's so vitally important. Um, another thing that is important I have found is as parents and caregivers, we need to rethink, right? We we need to, I always say, adjust our expectations and we need to rethink, right? Some of the things that we're doing. And I know you've talked about, um, you know, where, where, when it comes to things like lying or stealing or whatever those things are that we automatically is, assume that it's morally based, right? It's intentional lying and intentional stealing and they're being intentionally oppositional, right? But you point out that we need to rethink how we think about those things. So unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, um, that's a big one. Um, I, I honestly believe that it applies to everybody in terms of rethinking these behaviors because we're yes. just kind of told as children by the adults, you're lying. And that's kind of what we then push onto children and it's perpetuating. But like, what is a lie? Is it an impulsive statement that somebody makes because their brain is feeling lack of safe neuroception? And so they just say something as a defensive response and don't really know why they're lying in that situation. Mm -hmm. Is it confabulation, like we know yeah. is very common in FASD, in which case it doesn't feel like a lie to them. It's their reality. So calling it a lie is both like going to put them on the defensive probably and going to be confusing for them. Um, is it a misunderstanding of the information that they have processed or not processed or we put together in certain ways? Is it their neurodivergence because they have an FASD and they view the world differently, which can be a beautiful thing in a lot of situations? So there's all these things happening, but we as adults tend to be very impulsive and snap our fingers in judgment and be very mm -hmm. confident in those interpretations um, when we shouldn't be. And, and opposition um, is one that's really tough because it definitely looks really intentional. It looks like somebody who's just refusing to do something, but we, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more well understood that like these are defensive, usually automatic, you know, they're not sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to be oppositional to mom. And then that's going to not get me this, or that's going to get me that there's not that process happening. It's just, right coming out and our responses are usually the exact same thing so we as the adults are often having impulsive responses um and then punishing kids when they're having the, the same exact thing and so um it's really important to understand and each each of those have different sections in the book to pick apart what is opposition or what is lying or what is stealing what what else could be going on given what we know about what a lot of people with fasds are going through like the trauma piece potentially yeah, absolutely. I know a couple of those, like when I first learned what confabulation was, because I hadn't heard of that word before, and I have an older adult kid who was not diagnosed with FASD, but probably should have, but 
they're much older and I didn't know, like it was not where my younger two boys we knew and it was diagnosed. She came along much earlier on and wasn't, didn't come from a situation where I would have even thought, right. That there would, there would have been prenatal exposure. So, but even as an adult now, we'll be talking about things that happened, you know, oh, when we were kids and we did this and like, like retelling of memories and the, her memories are, there's big differences, right? Like I'm thinking that did not happen that way. And sometimes even some of my other kids will look at me like, you know, but once I learned what confabulation was, I started realizing her brain is filling in these gaps because she doesn't really remember exactly how things happened, but to her, that's how it happened, right? So it could look like lying, or at least it's confusing to some people, right? When they're hearing the story. Uh, but then when I learned about confabulation, I'm like, that makes sense. So yeah. it's not, she's not doing something to be annoying or irritating or telling the story wrong to, to, to make it different. It's just how her brain is remembering that information. And that was, that was amazing when I began to learn about that, because that was, that was different the same way as with the things that look like opposition, right? When, when parents come from that moral, um, you know, when we, when we judge everything from, from a moral point of view with, you know, you need to be obedient, you need to follow the rules. Uh, you know, if, if you're not doing that, if it's not immediate obedience, then it's disobedience and it's defiance and opposition. So, and then when I learned about executive function, right? So when you tell a kid, go clean your room, and then you find them an hour later and they're in their room, but it's not clean. We just assume they're being disobedient or defiant right. or whatever, but really their brain lacked the ability because of the executive dysfunction to plan and to organize and to follow through. And what does that all even mean? So, so it's so interesting as we begin to rethink our parenting and rethink what's going on through that lens of how their brain works or how it works differently. Um, it really does change things. And it, one of the things that changes is us as parents and caregivers or people working with FASD, if you can, if you can begin to really understand that. So um, yeah. I love how your book, your book uh, lays that out for us. Um, so my next question here, because we talked about the importance of connection, um, and yet our kids with FASDs often have difficulty in, with social situations, right? Whether it's family or kids in the classroom or just out in the community, they often can have, they can really struggle socially, right? So how can we as parents and caregivers help support our kids who, who do have a hard time in those social situations? Yeah, that's a big one too, because um, there's... I try to really distinguish in the book, the difference between social skills, like, you know, helping somebody with social skills and helping somebody with social interactions. And there's lots of problems with like the social skills industry for lack of a better term. Um, because so the, the first thing is we want to assess why do we have a concern about this? A lot of things that, you know, we might find different or annoying, you know, we have been raised to train this behavior out of somebody. So if somebody, you know, it, it's anything from behaviors to certain personalities. Like if somebody's too happy, that starts to annoy people because it, it it goes against like these social understandings of, of what the neurotypical expectations should be. Um, so, and I think that is something that, you know, we shouldn't even just gloss over. It's like a really important, you know, if your kid has a loud voice, you know, mm -hmm. 
is there always a correction needed, right? Or can they just be loud because that's likely likely a sensory thing um, or, you know, an expression thing, um, you know, how they enjoy playing with others. So there, we, we just really want to make sure that what we're not trying to do when we, when we even talk about supporting social interactions is trying to make neurodivergent kids look more neurotypical because that's going to take you in a likely bad direction. Once we, but then there are definitely legitimate, you know, situations where we, we, we value their neurodivergence, you know, where we're cool with them being who they are, being a little quirky, being different than everybody else. We see the strengths in that, but like, it's still really hard for them to hang out with other kids without quickly getting escalated or maybe getting competitive, getting too competitive and, you know, going in wanting to have a good time, but then just things go too quickly and I think that's really what it is. It's about how do we apply all of the essential supports that we learn earlier in the book to this idea of social interactions? Can we preset them up instead of having, you know, you know, so like one example is instead of having somebody just come over and hang out and, you know, it's really free flow, that may not work for a lot of kids. Right. So maybe it needs to be structured and finding peers who are willing to do that. Um really trying to match with peers who have the same play style or maybe who, you know, if you have the terms people use, I have a controlling kid when they're playing, like, well, I call them directors. They like to direct, right? Because maybe that's how their brain processes. And it's hard for them to like play games, you know, and, and respond to what other people are doing in real time, because that actually requires a lot of quick thinking. And so they default to you need to do this and you need to do this and then maybe get escalated when the peers don't do that, which a lot of peers don't necessarily want to do that. Um, so just finding like good matches where we can maybe do a little bit of that and let them have some of, of what works for them. And then also really intentionally practice with them outside of the moment. You know, what can you do if this happens? Let's actually pretend that you just lost this game. You know, what, what would you do? Have them practice taking that deep breath or coming over to you for a hug. Um, so really pre-practicing and role-playing um, as much as possible and then setting up interactions that actually make sense instead of kind of throwing them in there, you know, day after day, week after week. Um, and, and, and establishing patterns of reactivity with peers. Yeah, that makes me think of my son, the first year that we sent him to school um, was fifth grade, and we had homeschooled previously, and then he went in in fifth grade. So one area that he did not do well in was the playground, right? Recess, because recess was a time during the day where there was no structure, right? And it's all the yelling, you know, a lot of very overstimulating. And he didn't know what to do. He lacked some of the social skills, right, to be able to just go play or go do whatever. Um, and 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 the, the, the teacher or the aide on the playground had picked up on this early on. Like this, he was not, he sort of would self-isolate on the playground because he didn't know what to do. So they actually came up with a plan of instead of having him out on the playground, because it really wasn't a good fit for him, that each day at recess, he would get to be in the classroom to play board games, which is something he does really like to do. And then there were different students, they would rotate through. So other students, and it wasn't like a punishment, it was like an opportunity, right, to, to come in the, to come in the classroom and play a game. Because my son actually did much better. It was much more quieter. It was more self-contained. It was less people. And there was a structure to it. And that's how he spent recess the rest of the school year and was very successful. So it's one of those, again, where we're modifying the environment and better supporting the individual so that they can be successful. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I loved loved all of that in your book. Is there is there um, 
And because uh, where do you have a website? Like where can we point listeners to not only get your book, but to learn more if they wanted to connect with you and learn more about this? Yeah. If so, you can visit my website. It's cognitive supports. You can also go to cogsupports.com um, slash book, and you can order it for me directly. If you are in the U S um, you can also order it on Amazon, especially if you're international. Um, it's available in multiple of the international Amazon stores and other places, other retailers online. Um, but yeah, it, and and well, just on on top of what you were just saying, I had a family who once um, they 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 noticed that when their daughter was trying to play hide and seek, she would freeze because she in that moment of you know the countdown or whatever you know she's trying to hide somewhere her brain was too escalated in a sense too happy and excited to even find a place to hide and so i said well why don't you like take her out outside of school like to the playground and and help her find the good hiding spots proactively and then the next day she's in school she'll have some pre-planned places to go and that's what they did and it, it, it helped with the processing in the moment because she had done a lot of that pre-planning ahead of time and it worked great. So wow. yeah, because yeah, remembering in that moment where to go, right? Yeah. I could see where that would be a challenge. But then if you have those go-to places because you've practiced it and planned ahead, I find that the planning ahead, preventing in some cases, especially when we have the impulsivity, which we didn't even get to, um, and just and just being prepared like that really does help our kids to be more successful. Yeah. And it's not like a hundred percent, like, you know, I'm definitely not suggesting that everything here brings perfection or bliss. There's just so many factors when you're trying to take a brain first situation there. I mean, there, there's billions of neurons, like there's just so many things that could be happening. Um, But I think that a lot of parents are at a place where like in some situations, 10% improvements are valued or 50% improvements are great. So um, it's a matter of continuing to explore, you know, what works and what doesn't work for each individual child with an FASD. Yeah. Cause every brain is different, right? So these are all great strategies to, to implement, to explore. Um, sometimes, you know, with any of these things, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and it depends on the day of the week, right. Or the time of the year, but, and every brain is different, but these are definitely, I highly recommend the book essential FASD supports. It is, um, an incredible resource that every foster and adoptive parent, I believe should have. We will put links in the uh, show notes so that way our listeners can easily find your book and find your website. Um, So so Nate, as we wrap up, um, most of our listeners are adoptive and foster parents um, or, or grandparents even raising grandchildren who may or may not know that there's been prenatal exposure, um, but it's, you know, we're on this journey. It can be very difficult because you, you've worked in this space of foster care with foster kids. So you understand that. So could you, would you leave us with some encouraging words or some advice um, to help our, our parents listening? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you can be curious as much as possible, which I know like in the day to day, being curious, like people are like, oh, that's a lot. And absolutely, it's fine to be that way a lot of the time. But as much as possible, being curious about the challenges can help you to remember that this is a brain thing. And even though it looks intentional, it seems like they could just turn it off if they wanted to. Um, There is, I mean, we just know with FASD, there's something going on. um, And so we just want to continue to try to avoid taking things personally. Um, The other thing I want to just put out there is that you know, when we talk about regulation and parents staying regulated, it doesn't always mean calm. 
It means experiencing whatever you're experiencing, um, but but being able to keep your nervous system regulated and not, you know, not going into complete dysregulation. But it doesn't mean you're going to feel happy while it's happening. Um, and it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at that. And that that pressure shouldn't even be put on you, um, even though like our regulation is really important. It's OK to be human. It's OK to dysregulate, especially when we think about the systems that we're trying to navigate with these kids and how they're impacting us and our kids negatively. So I think that's really normal um, and we're struggling with that. Hopefully the systems can continue to improve. Um, but you can't expect perfection out of yourself, even like with the strategies that we're talking about. So I don't want anybody to feel like, you know, this is all on me to stay regulated and calm. Like you're a human too. You're allowed to struggle just like our kids are allowed to struggle. So let's have a plan for when we're struggling, hopefully with everybody, get to a place where we can be proactive again and try to move forward for the next time. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Be curious. Um, don't take it personal and really give ourselves some grace, cut ourselves some slack as parents, because it's a hard journey. Um, but there's our kiddos have such great strengths and we can try these things. And 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 I have found that the more I have come to understand these things and, and, and tried to apply them or practice them, the more success that we've had. And just recently, one of our parents in our support group had shared that um, with the learning about the slow processing with one of her kiddos, the beginning of the school year here, um, she had had asked one of her kiddos, do you have anything for me? You know, the first week of school, the teachers are sending home all kinds of papers that the parents have to sign and whatnot. And her daughter right away said, nope. And mm-hmm. this mom said, I just practiced not saying anything else. And a few minutes later, her daughter brought, oh, here, I do have something you have to sign. Right. Yeah. But it gave she practiced allowing her daughter that quiet space to think and process. And then she was able to remember, oh, I do have something. So, yeah. we, you know, I, it was just really a perfect example of how practicing these things and being curious about these things and applying them, we can really learn a lot about our kids and be able to support our kids better. So, Nate, thank you so much. Again, your book, it's the Essential FASD Supports. Um, highly recommend it. We're going to put links in the show notes. Thank you for all you're doing on behalf of the FASD community. And thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Wow. I just love that conversation with Nate Sheets. Um, Again, highly recommend his book. We will put links uh, in the show notes so that you can find it super easily. Of course, Amazon is where we most of us buy our books anyway. So wherever you choose to find it, I highly recommend it. If you're a foster and adoptive parent, whether or not you know your kiddo has NFASD. Um, and also, um, in addition to encouraging you and equipping you for your parenting journey, um, keep in mind all of our FASD resources um, that we offer on our website from the training to the Hope for the FASD Journey support group. Um, this podcast, of course, is a resource. We're um, doing some coaching now as well really want to equip you for this parenting journey. So I hope you'll check those out on our website, justicefororphansny.org. Link in the show notes to that as well. Find us on social media at Justice for Orphans, as well as myself, Sandra Flack. Um, I'm grateful to have you along for the journey. And I hope that you will also uh, find or subscribe, follow this podcast so that not only you'll be able to have access to every episode, but more adoptive and foster families will be able to find it. So thanks again. Grateful to have you along for the journey. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.